This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot. You are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode number 372. You know, one of the smaller suppliers was very reluctant to renegotiate payment terms, and we had, you know, just very limited cash. And you know, I was at the uh, a hotel conference room with a, my VP of manufacturing and then the supplier and some translators. Um, I had to get back to Hong Kong for a meeting, and they literally, um, you know, chased me and called my taxi driver, um, threatened him to turn around, and he, believe it or not, he refused to uh, to drive me over to Hong Kong and. Um, I had to change taxis in an underground garage somewhere before I could get back to Hong Kong. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to CFO Karen Cambray of Tamer, a data unification company. It's a startup with an already impressive list of marquee customers, including GE, Toyota, and Thomson Reuters. We speak to Karen about her earlier adventures as a startup CFO, as well as her latest tour of duty at Tamer. After these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. career CFO, who last year was named CFO and operations lead of Tamer. Karen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Karen, we want to find out about Tamer, but first we always like to ask our guests to look back and tell us a little bit about themselves and what were those career experiences they feel prepared them for a, a CFO role. What comes to mind? So I have always valued learning and wanted to learn as, as, as much as I could about various roles in finance early on in my career. I started out at Arthur Anderson um, in public accounting a long time ago and then spent eight years at a large company, um, Millipore, uh, now known as EMD Millipore, in, in various roles, um, manufacturing plant controller, in international finance, um, in FP&A. 
and just doing it and off, uh, just different things within within the finance organization. And I was constantly thinking about adding new tools to my toolbox, which is basically the advice that I give now to you know, younger financial professionals that I mentor today. And you know, it was all of those skills I think um, and experiences that helped me get the my first job at an early stage company um, back in 1998. And it was there that I realized that I was um, I realized that I had a passion for these early stage and, and growth stage companies. You know, at the end of the day, you're building something, and you know, you're growing something, you're creating jobs, and and um, and you're adding value. So um, so I've been you know with these smaller earlier stage companies, you know, for the remainder of my career. Now, just to return to Millipore uh, for a moment, I have to believe there was a an inflection point there. Did you have come to a point in the road where you had the opportunity to move on into another large enterprise, but you chose not to? And and what was it that did you did you experience? You wanted to uh, play a larger strategic role. What is it that led you to an early stage company? Yeah, no, ex- exactly. That's what it was, right? So when I was looking to leave Millipore, you know, I was looking at other larger companies, and then and then this one opportunity presented itself to me. And again, being able to you know work closely with the executive team, setting the strategy of the company, really like planning the strategy and being able to execute the strategy and then and and having a real impact on the business, right? So not being so far removed at various levels in the organization where you can't have such an impact, but you know, knowing that, you know, the things that you do, um, you know, really, you know, can help grow an organization. So so that's really what it was. And so um, I'm not going to lie to you. It is a, it's a culture shock, right? When you go from a large company like Arthur Anderson and, and Millipore to a smaller company, which is resource challenged, you know, you're strapped for cash and you're managing cash. Um, and there were no processes. You're implementing processes, or I should say that there were, you know, fewer processes and controls, and you've got to put everything in place. Um, but you have the opportunity to do it your way and to put, you know, what you think works best. That resource-hungry environment uh, you described is one you entered multiple times over the years. And uh, you, you were a CFO prior to Tamer for several uh, early-stage companies. And I'm wondering if there's an example of a story uh, that, in your mind, underscores uh, the unique challenges early stage companies face sometimes, and I promise after this, we'll we'll uh, I'll ask you about Tamer. We want to find out more. Yeah, you know what? They've all you know really really great experiences, right? Even some of the ones that you know weren't so successful. Um, you know, we um, one one of the companies I was with called, called Zemo in the. Um, in you know 2008 and nine, you know we were. It was really an unfortunate time during to you know during the Great Recession. Um, you know we had large purchase orders placed on us from from customers, and we were you know building inventory to respond to that demand. And you know the the recession hit at the height of it. They canceled all their purchase orders on us and. Um, you know what do you do? You you know you have to you know figure out you know you you ordered all this product through your contract manufacturers, and now you have to figure out how to unwind these deals and work on settlements. And you know, I spent three weeks in China um, doing just that, right? Negotiating and um, and and you know, working 
do working on, you know, settlements and payment terms, et cetera. So, you know, as, as difficult um, and disappointing as that was, you know, it's also, you know, a, a, a unique experience. No, uh, no doubt. Can, can you give us any more detail as to what transpired there or how that ended up? So basically what happened was is, you know, one of the smaller suppliers was very reluctant to renegotiate payment terms, and we had, you know, just very limited cash. And you know, I was at the, uh, a hotel conference room with a, my VP of manufacturing and the, and the supplier and some translators. Um, I had to get back to Hong Kong for a meeting, and they literally, um, you know, chased me and called my taxi driver, um, threatened him to turn around, and he – Believe it or not, he refused to uh, to drive me over to Hong Kong, and um, I had to change taxis in an underground garage somewhere before I could get back to Hong Kong because they were chasing me down. I didn't have any you know, money to pay them with, of course, but um, you know, we eventually um, wired them, you know, some amount of money and, and paid off uh, the bills. But it's a it's a yeah, <laughs> unique, right? Not exactly what you expected from your finance career. Yeah. I have to ask for some takeaways. Uh, how, you know, how to avoid these types of situations. What What were your uh, lessons learned? Right. So you know, that's that's a tough one, right? I think the lesson learned there is, um, you know, you've got to be really careful in 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 where you you um, how you spend, how you invest in growth, and really you, you've got to be careful not to get ahead of revenue. And I think ever since then, I've always you know, had a really balanced vision of, you know, yes, we have to invest in growth. We have to be really careful and strategic about how we invest in growth. We have to set certain milestones in place so that, you know, we uh, we know that we're hitting the milestones before we continue to invest and, you know, and, 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 and start to manage to, to profitability. I think that's, a, that's the biggest lesson there, right, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to get into that situation where you are trying to unwind certain deals or, you know, negotiate, you know, settlements. Um, that's uh, just a terrible place to be. And so, yeah, the advice there to that, I, that I learned and I would give to any others is, you know, be, you know, thoughtful about how rapidly you invest and, you know, constantly check in and check, check your milestones. So after all this experience and, and lessons learned, what is the role that you wanted to create for yourself when you arrive at Tamer? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is to be the, the, the strategic CFO, the strategic partner to the CEO to, you know, help build the business, right? We want to build a really large company at Tamer, and being part of that is, is very exciting to me. Um, so it, not just managing the finances, but, you know, being able to help, um, in terms of, you know, um, identifying where the company should be investing, how fast we should be investing, um, when we should be getting to, to profitability, um, determining the capital requirements for the company and making sure that we have a plan so that, you know, we have enough capital to invest and to get to that, to get to the point where we are profitable. Um, and then just, you know, growing, you know, growing the business, um, implementing and, and driving a really good, strong culture where people want to work, um, come to work there and stay there. Um, so, so those are the types of things that I see as my primary roles at Tamer. So why, why was this an opportunity you decided could not be turned down? Um, you know, it really was all about the team. So the founder and CEO, Andy Palmer, um, you know, he is a you know really successful entrepreneur. He's done this before, 
and his his idea um, of creating this large data unification company um, was really exciting. Um, he is really he's very very passionate about it and very driven. He's assembled a really excellent leadership team. So my peers, um, the head of marketing, the head of services, the VP of engineering, the chief revenue officer, it is an outstanding team of really smart people who have all done their roles before, and you know I'm privileged to you know to to work with them. Um, one other thing is that half of that team, they just they happen to be women as well. So, um, you know, 50% of our leadership team, you know, are women, and that's, you know, really, really exciting. Um, we have, uh, you know, top-tier investors in NEA and Google Ventures, um, you know, who are, you know, really supportive and, and, and known for investing in, in, in winners, right, in companies that are winners. So all of those things combined uh, really made it an easy decision for me. Let me ask, is it that your CEO made having women on his management team a priority? So Andy makes diversity a priority, and he is very passionate about making sure that we have a diverse workforce. He also wants to hire the best people for the best roles. Um, the fact that a couple of us happen to be women were, you know, were great. Um, one woman we promoted from within, so um, Claire Bernard is our VP of Engineering, and we promoted her to VP this year. And then two new women to the team, the Chief Revenue Officer, um, Melissa Campbell, and, and myself. Um, so I think for, for Andy and for Tamer, it's really important to have a, a diverse workforce. So let's find out about Tamer and the types of services that it is offering. What and, and what, what exactly is the sort of the competitive edge it might enjoy today? Yeah, so sure. So so what Tamer is is it's an enterprise data unification platform. We have software that uses machine learning with some human expert input, if you will, to to unify and prepare data for analytics. And what we're able to do is we're able to, to curate data so that companies are able to use analytics and, and gain, you know, business-changing insights that may have previously been unavailable um, because the data, you know, was, you know, not unified, not clean, resided in, you know, different ERP systems. A uh, perfect example is um, one of our large customers is uh, GE. And basically what we did there is we were able to go in and, and take data from, they had it residing in over, I think it was 75 different ERP systems. And we gave them this, this integrated view of all of their supplier data across all of those ERP systems. And it allowed them to you know, realize $80 million in cost savings within the first year of our implementation. So, um, so I think what we're doing is solving a real problem. Companies are trying to monetize data. They're actually starting to think of data as an asset right now. That's a you know a new trend. Companies are looking at you know how can they monetize this asset, and you know what we do is we solve this real problem and we help them you know monetize this this asset. Okay, so I have to imagine cash uh, is uh, one of the things you keep an eye on closely uh, as a startup, but can you tell us what the key metrics are for your world? 
Yep, sure, absolutely. So you know, you you hit it right now. It's it's cash management, right? And you, we are investing in growth, of course. But you know, it's my my job to make sure that you know we're managing the cash. We have enough of cash to to do what we want to do, yet still get us on that path to to profitability. Um, that's number one. Also, too, because we know we're earlier stage of the top line metrics, right? The um, the bookings metrics, the ARR, um, annual recurring revenue, um, those those metrics um, I look at you know all the time. Um, spend an awful lot of time with our chief revenue officer about you know what what deals are in the pipeline, what's going to close, and then forecasting out you know revenue and ARR. Um, um, also, to churn, right, is a custom is a metric that we look at. Thankfully, we don't have very much churn at all, right. But as we grow and acquire more customers, you know, we'll make sure that you know that's a key metric to to measure customer success and customer happiness. Um, and it's important, right, to have happy customers. We're selling to global two thousand companies, and you know, for us, um, being able to upsell. Um, and to expand our offerings within customers is really important. And so the, uh, the happier customers, the, the more they buy from you. Okay. We always like to ask uh, for a finance strategic moment. I think you've already shared a few, uh, but if it's okay, I'll ask the question again. Um, sometime in, in the course of your career, uh, given your lines of sight into the organization, you might have seen a risk or an opportunity or uh, and, and point at the organization in a new direction, perhaps. What what comes to mind? Yeah. So I think so. One of the big ones that come to mind was in um, I think it was 2012, 2012, 2013, and you know at a company where you know we were starting to to run a little bit low on cash, and at that time we were still in the middle of that recession period, and and uh, venture capital and private equity was uh, was a lot harder. It was a lot. There was a lot tighter market back then. And um, you know, realizing that that um, you know we really needed to to tighten up, uh, focus our resources, and and get to profitability. We had to turn the company around and pivot towards you know profitability, and that you know required you know qu- you know quite quite challenging, right? So you know you have to determine where are you going to focus your investment dollars, right? You want to focus them in growth. You can't do all, but you have to, you know, identify the higher prob- the ones that have a higher probability of success and, you know, greater return. Um, you've got to cut off the spending on those projects that, you know, you don't think are going to have a, a, a great return. Um, that, for us, included, you know, sunsetting a technology platform that wasn't scaling. Um, you know, we had to... Um, you know, we shut down one particular business unit that, you know, also wasn't profitable. You know, we looked at our customers and said, you know, hey, we got a bunch of these small customers that are, you know, are not profitable. They're requiring an awful lot more time and effort and energy and cost than we're getting paid. So, you know, we went through and terminated some customers. Um, and, you know, reorganized also the, you know, right – the, the the company the headcount uh, moving people around into different roles and uh, you know we turned the company around right and we were heck we were uh, losing like 30% of revenue in 2012 and by uh, you know 2014 um, break even making money to being you know incredibly profitable in, in 2015. Now I know uh, the Boston Business Journal uh, named you as CFO of the year uh, in 2014. I think in part because of returning a company of profitability. Was this the instance? 
Yes, exactly that. And it was really exciting to be recognized by my CEO and my peers for, for the work I had done there. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad uh, we covered that chapter, and I'm glad I asked. And now I want to ask you about talent, and it's clearly a big part of uh, any successful startup. What What is your mindset as a finance leader when it comes to talent? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? It's about hiring the best people and then retaining them. Um, you know, everyone in finance knows that it costs twice as much to replace a, you know, a, a really, really good employee than, you know, to hire the right one. Um, I think, um, you know, particularly in a, you know, in an economy where unemployment is so low, right? In math, I think it's 3.7% or something like that, right? Last time I looked. And, you know, so what are the, you know, so constantly thinking about what are the things that we can do to make sure that we're hiring the best and retaining the best. And Andy Palmer, our CEO, you know, does an excellent job at that. And he, you know, had really, really driven a fantastic culture before I arrived. And it's, you know, my responsibility to make sure that that evolves even further. Um, you know, some of the things that we do, making sure that, you know, we're establishing, you know, clear goals and, and, and objectives for employees, um, things that they can get behind, um, making sure that they're supported in, in helping them achieve them. Um, you know, some of the, the things, you know, you, you know, any company can do, like, you know, acquire your, you know, you know your next, you know, your top uh, next, your next 10 customers or acquire 2,000 users or get to 10,000 users per month, like things like that, metrics like that, that, you know, um, if people can feel motivated to achieve or, um, you know, and, and then they're measurable. Um, you know, for us making sure that, you know, our workforce is pretty young, you know, outside of the leadership team, it's a really young workforce, uh, making sure that they have um, a, a career development path, a professional development path, which is hard in a company that's, you know, just under 100 employees, right? How do you, you know, create career paths? But, you know, we have this concept of tours of duty so that, you know, if we can, we try to move people around into different areas of the organization. So if, you know, a field engineer, you know, wants to try, um, you know, has worked with our product but wants to try something in product management, you know, we've, you know, we've done that. We've moved him over and so that he could, you know, do a stint in, in product. And so I think employees really like that, right, because they have an opportunity to do, you know, uh, other things, move around within the company. Um, you know, again, really hard to achieve in, in a small company. I did that a lot in my days at Millipore. I had, you know, four different roles. I was able to move around. Some of them were lateral, some of them were promotions. But, you know, we try very hard to ensure that, you know, we're developing our, our employees. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that makes them happy. Um, you know, we also try to be as transparent as possible. So making sure that, you know, we're the leadership team is communicating to the employees constantly. Um, and, you know, that, 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 that gives them, you know, quite a bit of comfort, particularly when you're in a situation where, you know, you've, they understand that we have limited cash and they want to, you know, they want to know, um, you know, where is that cash going? Do we have anything to worry about? And so we do an awful lot of communication to make sure that they're, you know, that they're comfortable. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. CFO Karen Cambry enters the mentoring round after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, 
clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, we want to move quickly to our mentoring round, where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Um, yeah, I think, you know, there's a, a couple of things, right? I think that um, I'm really excited that um, we're seeing more and more women in, in leadership positions. You know, at Tamar, I mentioned, you know, half of the leadership team, you know, are, are, you know, are women. Um, and so I, that's personally very exciting to me. Uh, I do a lot of mentoring myself for young women in finance and, and recent college grads. Um, so, yeah, I find that really exciting. I also like, you know, the technology has changed quite a bit as well. And I think technology has allowed finance and accounting teams to spend much less time on non-value-added tasks and, you know, do more of the analytical work that I, I think is, is, is more helpful, right? So you've got a lot of automated systems and tools, um, you know, that, that I think make, make things an awful lot easier for, for them, the departments, on a day-to-day -day basis. So if we were to uh, step back in time again, uh, that first time you uh, received the CFO title, you stepped into the office, is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you at that place in time? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think, um, you know, you, I spent enough time in finance knowing that there, you know, there were the certain financial skills that you needed to have and certainly, you know, being able to work well with people and other team members from, you know, the various areas. And so you understand that. But I guess what I hadn't really appreciated was that, you know, oftentimes because you are um, the counsel to the other members of the team, right, the other members of the leadership team, and you're, you know, providing business advice, that you sometimes become the, the psychoanalyst for them as well, right? So you end up, you know, helping not just with, with you know, with business device, but your business device, but you're also helping, you know, to when, when some managers have conflict, um, if you will, with other departments, you know, you're helping to resolve that conflict. Um, you become, you know, the confidant. Um, and so I, I, I hadn't really appreciated that, um, you know, when I first became CFO, but I think, yeah, you've got to be really thoughtful, right? It, make, it means that you have to be thoughtful about the advice you, you, you're giving to people, um, be super objective and really pragmatic about it. And, and, you know, that's something that's been echoed before uh, for us, that, that it's the people piece of this that, that might be somewhat uh, surprising once you land in the uh, CFO office. Where do you think you acquired those skills? I, Being a good listener, maybe. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You know, and I was going to say that. Actually, you have to be an excellent listener, right? Because, you know, you have to, um, you have to be an excellent listener. You have to be pretty analytical. So there's an intersection of people skills and analytical skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's true, right? So, so, yes, you have to be really an excellent listener. And you have to be really analytical about, you know, how you uh, – 
about the problems that you're trying to solve and the advice that you're trying to give, right? And so I think, yeah, it, it, it is an interesting intersection, right? Because you have to have really good, um, I think, to be a successful CFO, right? You have to have really good listening skills, um, the ability to work well with people um, and to help them solve their problems um, or, or uh you know, or whatever issues that they're coming to you for. It's, it's, a, it's a skill that you need to have to be a successful CFO. So you might have already answered my next question, which is do you have a, a personal habit you feel has contributed to your professional success? You know, I think that it is that. I think I do have an ability to work you know, very, very well with people, um, uh, to collaborate. The employees and investors are going to look to the CFO for assurances and maintaining a calming, strong presence as well. Now, is there a book uh, that you'd recommend uh, to aspiring finance leaders? A couple come to mind. So the most recent book I read was the, uh, the biography of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernoff. And it's fascinating because this is about, you know, an absolutely very, very driven individual who accomplished so, so much. Um, you know, he was also, you know, angered some people along the way. But um, when you just see what, what he did, um, you know, as the founder of the Treasury and, and, and of our modern banking system, it's just really impressive. Somebody who was very, very driven and, um, and, and focused and how much they accomplished. Um, another book that um, – it's called Entering Startup Land by Jeff Buskang, who's a, a, a colleague, a, a friend and mentor of mine, a venture capital, venture capitalist here in the Boston area. And it's a great book for people who are interested in joining early stage companies and really outlining, you know, the, the challenges and what the differences are between, you know, these companies and, and large companies. And I think if anyone um, is interested in, in learning about startups, then this is a great book. Okay, we're up to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? So capital planning and making sure that we have enough um, capital to invest in growth and still get to profitability. Um, making sure that we're hiring all the right people and retaining the right people to you know, help us get to the, the growth rates that we want to achieve. Those are, those are the top two priorities right now. Sharon Cambray, thank you for joining us on CFO Talking. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.